Hey all, Josh here. Just really quickly, there's several segments of music in this episode of the podcast that come courtesy of our guest, Craig Dent, and the project that he is part of and has been working on, Thermonuclear Tantrum Time. Just listen out for those, as we don't really introduce them as actual segments in the podcast. It's just one straight conversation. You'll hear some music in a second and also some later in the episode that is actually from Craig and his team. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's get going. I got a new energy sugar in my blood tonight you got eyes like the day And it's a purifying light Life's an ending movie Showing in your eyes Love is elastic It has no shape or size Hi everyone, I'm here with Craig Dent, who is the co-creator of Thermonuclear Tantrum Time, which is, once you get your head around that particular mouthful, you can't forget it. So it's a very memorable title once you get your head around it. And Craig's actually coming to us, I think, from the King Valley. We won't won't geolocate him too much more than that today, but yeah, he's probably the furthest afield of any of my recent guests. And yeah, Thermonuclear Tantrum Time is, I remember seeing you and your co-creator, John, talk about it at a conference here or an expo in 2017 in Albury-Wodonga. Yeah. And it's a massive thing that you guys are trying to pull off. So, Craig, do you just want to tell us what it is and then maybe we'll backtrack and then talk about how you got into creating what is looking like to be an epic sci-fi story from the country. Yeah. You're based in the country, which isn't probably where yeah, most, most know, people thanks. would try and do it from. From from the city, yeah. No, thanks, Josh. Um, we are... Uh... The story actually has three narratives, which I think is the really unique feature that um, all combine in the end to explain the climax of the story. Um, and it effectively is the three story arcs involve uh, a graphic novelist who has recently returned to the Midder Valley, um, where he's inherited the old dairy farm from his grandmother. And it's set in the future where there is now one commercialised dairy operating up in that valley. So obviously that's something that's topical at the minute. Yes. Um, but we started this story 10 years ago. So, yeah, so that's one story thread. And then he is creating a graphic novel called The Misadventures of Trip Hazard and Astral Plane, which is an anti-hero story, more than a superhero story, in the farmhouse while his wife... Chloe is nursing in a hospital about an hour, hour, hour and a half away. The, his cartoon or graphic novel that he's creating is based on a real space mission that's been sent by a private company out to investigate a signal on the edge of the galaxy. So it's science fiction, which obviously in itself is a massive thing to try and do. But those three story arcs, all interweave and combine. Not a small thing to say. It's a pretty huge amount of narrative <laughs> that you guys are trying to pull off. So I guess, can we just go back a little bit and just 
before we dig into maybe the story more on how you're hoping it will roll out, et cetera, across the different ways you're trying to build the story, how did you get into even wanting to create something of that scope? And, I mean, you're now based again in the country, but was that where you started writing this story or were you was it similar for yourself that you were actually in the city and then moved back to the, a regional place? Yeah, well, I didn't really consider that, but I, I started the story um, in the last probably six months to 12 months that I was in Canberra. So okay. I went to Canberra for uni and then I lived up there for about 16 years and I was on my way to move back. And in that final year, um, I'd started developing this story. So I didn't actually consider what you said about the fact that he's moved back from the city to the country. So in that way, it's probably... I've taken threads of my own sort of life in, in that sense. Yep. And when I came back, I had the initial outline of the story and then I met uh, John Walker, you know, who had been a comedian and done a lot of work in the area and on TV and through friends. And then I said, look, I've got this story and, you know, I'm interested to see what you think. Um, and then he then came on board as a as a story editor, like a co-writer. And we've had some pretty intense sessions, like going through the story where we've tried to drill down deep about how it all interconnects. Obviously, um, when you're writing science fiction, you've got to really sort of have your research down pat. So um, John's been fantastic in probably in terms of pulling me back into something that's sustainable as a story. So are you saying that maybe your natural inclination was for this thing to get bigger and grander continuously? Just grow and grow. I initially, <laughs> I initially wrote an ending like beyond the actual ending. Okay. Um, I think because, and I think sometimes that's a lack of confidence in the original ending idea. And this is probably an interesting part of it is that because I'd written the first ending and then we gave it to a few people, my brother included, who also writes. And um, he actually came back and said, oh, I thought it had already ended and then it kind of went on and I didn't really understand why it had went on. So then when John and I looked at it again, we took out the extended ending, went back to the original ending, which was quite dramatic. But then after that, we added a little bit beyond the ending. So it was kind of like a set up for the next lot of like what had happened to the villains in the story so in some ways the process of doing it has changed but we were on the right track in the first place to extend it but we just didn't extend it as much it was only a matter of a couple of little ecliptic scenes yeah right and that brings up something interesting i mean most of my creative work that i've done throughout my life would have was in the mu- field of music and progressive rock music, and yeah, yeah. I, I know firsthand what it's like, particularly science fiction and progressive rock. I think are probably the two most analogous things from the the story side of things, and also from music side of things. In that you never quite feel like you're done. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree that you're always wanting to rework something, and I mean even the most famous of bands have recorded songs and then reworked them live or gone back and thought, I didn't really have that how I thought it should be, Um, which is the limitation of time and 
studio pressures and, and the same for films. We actually did an audition process at Supernova Pop Culture Expo in Melbourne. So that was, um, that was a real eye-opener because obviously we're up here in the country and we took the idea with a whole visual presentation of music and visuals down to Melbourne and the amount of young people or people of all ages that were, you know, your nerds and geek freaks by their own sort of self-proclamation yeah. Um, were coming up to us saying what a fantastic story they thought it was. And then, you know, in other ways, it is complex, but I think it's for people that like to do the investigative thing or they like those hidden things in the story to be revealed. Okay, so just to throw a couple of examples out there, would you say that yeah. maybe what you guys are going for is a product that would appeal maybe more to a fan of uh, Lost as opposed to a fan of Star Trek when it comes to the science fiction element? Is it more of a? Th- is there a lot of subtext to what's happening, and obviously a lot of misdirection and all that sort of stuff, a la a Lost, where you don't really feel like you know what's going on, but it's still super enjoyable? Is that kind of the vibe? I think yeah, it's interesting in that. Well, that's it's kind of yes and no, and and yes no in in a way because the. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a lot of um, scenes in the farmhouse which are without dialogue, which is all with action, which relates to the fact that the graphic novelist has has had a traumatic episode which sees him in a like, catatonic state and his wife, um, who's the nurse, has to care for him at home and becomes um, the central protagonist. So the story opens up with him as the central protagonist, but it quickly shifts to being his wife and her investigative abilities. So in that way, the scenes in the farmhouse are very tense, not a lot of dialogue and quite spooky um, because she's more or less isolated there on her own in this valley with no no other people around. But then the graphic novel is very... um, it's not bubble gum. It's like those warheads, you know, where you used to suck on the candy on the outer layer and it was bitter inside. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably a good analogy for the anti-heroes and how they develop. So it's very um, wicked kind of um, text and their sense of payback and all of that. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's out there definitely. And then the real astronauts is very high-tech talk. So you've got in the one story you know, the kind of rustic nah, dialogue between the husband and wife until he's in this state. And then these, you know, dreadful silences within the farmhouse. And then, you know, the wicked kind of language of the anti-heroes and then the high-tech speak of the astronauts. So that's what we've tried to build where it's a really, really d- different story. And, that it's, and it's also very Australian. So instead of being a... Like a Marvel movie, it's more a movie about the creator of a Marvel movie. Okay. So, in a way, he's kind of like a junior league Stan Lee, you know, <laughs> okay. yeah. um, in, in some sort of perverse way. You know, that's what we've endeavoured to create. Yeah, wow. So, there's a lot in that, I guess. With the, yeah, yeah. With the just from a creative point of view, when you're writing those different small worlds and worlds of dialogue within the greater story do you have to do that as a group or if you're writing most of certain parts of it craig 
do you have to do that in a different mindset or do you try and if you're feeling a certain way as an individual or a group do you write one part of the story that suits how you're feeling at the time and then maybe on a different day write something else or are you actually trying to jump from part to part to part more more chronologically and how, is that difficult to do if you are choosing to do it that way I tend to write forwards like chronologically so yeah it's a matter of actually having written like a, a first version of the story and then John and I referencing back to those linking scenes and at one point well even now actually we've got the the the, the uh, scriptment which we've submitted to Screen Australia the scriptment is actually color coded because there's three different sets of narratives happening yeah right so um in that way, we're able to backtrack and work out which sense of action we've got where and how that how that interlocks with the other, the rest of the story that's happening. So it's um it's a complex process, and we're consistently writing and then dumping and writing again. And I mean, only recently I went back in and sort of thought, why did I expand that beyond what the original idea was? And then and then I took it out again. So it's yeah, it's there's always an initial draft of a story and then that process of adding and eliminating and adding until you sort of feel you get the right mix. I guess because I don't really have anything else to analogize, I guess for me, like when it comes to songwriting, a thing you said in there was the word process. And yeah, it's I've had people in the past, even in some of the bands that I've been in, asking me the question of when's this going to be done? Like when is this thing yeah, that yeah. you're doing actually going to be done? And part of the heart, part of the problem is, is the overriding factor. You you, yeah, you push yeah. something to the point where the the original idea becomes murky or it's lost or you think you've gone so far down a certain path that whatever was magical about the original thing you did is kind of, you know, somewhere buried in there, but it's not obvious. How do you guys as a group? How do you how do you know as a group? Like you said that you go back in Craig and you think, oh, why did I do that? How do you know that you even need to do that? Like what what's the impetus for you to know that? Oh, maybe I overwrote that. I think it. I think what we've done, like using people that we knew between John and I, we have like you know three friends that are actors who have actually acted nationally. Yeah. And the very early version of the story I sent to my friend Abby in Sydney, and she read it back and said, wow, it's really like I love how those worlds all come together um, and the and the not not inception because obviously they're different layers of a dreamscape but in a different way. So she gave us positive feedback and then about halfway through I sent it to another friend and then he came back and said, I absolutely love the ambience in that farmhouse and the way it's sort of descending into madness in a way. Um, and then recently, John sent it off to a friend of his, and then he came back and said, at first, the idea of three narratives he found really elusive, but as it all wove together, like, I'm not sure how I'd sort of create the analogy for it, but almost like making a rope, I suppose, where you've got the different strands. And he said, in the end, when it all came together, he was kind of blown away and then found himself going back to elements of the story that had led to that final point. So, I mean, that's when you get feedback like that, that's great. You don't always get that. Like you'll get, you know, we did have 
another person who was a director who just saw we should simplify it like into one idea. And we kept going to ourselves, well, we can do that, but are we going to live with it, you know? So, and also I just didn't think it would work if we simplified it. So into one narrative or even just two. So we kept to what we were doing and thought it's either good enough to be out there or we'll publish it as a book. So yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exploring sort of different ways of doing it. I mean, you'd, I, I mentor young people with writing and music and visual arts, and I always say to them, you've got to have confidence in your idea, and you've got to take feedback from people and then process that and filter it and either improve your work or, in some instances, stick to your original idea because everyone's creativity is its own sort of nascent, unique thing, and... It's easy to have what would be death by committee, you know, where every idea seems the same. You brought up what may be happening with the story going forward. I just wanted to just sit on what you've just said there, Craig. I think it was really, yeah, really uh, crucial. And that is that when when you were talking about maybe the director that said a simpler story, to me the first thing I thought when you said that was it would be like if you imagine a reimagined version of the Fellowship of the Rings and, oh, sorry, Fellowship of the Ring, and then it started at the meeting where they first try to break the ring as a group and then they all break off into their separate stories. Or the battle, yeah, the first battle yeah. on the mountain where they first fight the the orcs and they go all go their separate ways. Basically, you guys, and I don't like to say you're taking the risk, but it might be the best way to put it. You're starting a story that is separate and then hoping that people have the wherewithal to actually absorb all of that, follow the narratives, and then they weave together into what those other two people that have read the story said was fantastic. Do Did you have any doubt that through that process that maybe if we started simpler, then broke off and then came back together, it would make more sense? Or how did you actually feel confident enough to stick with the fact that there were separate narratives that worked together? Because a certain portion of people... They're either just too lazy or they won't bother following it or it's not how they like stories to work. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, it's. I think as you get older, like you kind of realise that you, you're um, sticking to your idea is sometimes more important to be loyal to that idea and the team that you're working with more so than and I'll use the word bastardising, and I know we're on radio, but it's not a swear word when it's no, used in it's my not, context. No, but, there's a lot worse yeah. that's been said on this show, trust but, me. So. Yeah, well, no doubt. Um, <laughs> so, the, the um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't have actually... I mean, look, that discussion was had really early on with another member in our creative team was sort of saying, well, you know, what about the commercial income or whatever outcome? And I kind of immediately bucked at that. Like, I... I've like I saw the movie Gattaca and loved it. My favourite so, favourite sci-fi film is Blade Runner, which at the time of its release was not in any way a success, like commercially, but it became critically loved. Um, and, and and even the new one, I, I thought the new one and seeing that at the cinema um, was such a mind-blowing experience to be immersed in this whole other world. To me, I thought it was fantastic. So then when it probably wasn't the box office success that they had hoped, 
yeah, you're always kind of stunned when people come out and say it should have been shorter or whatever, because if it was shorter, would you have felt that sense of immersion in the story? Like with Game of Thrones, would you be as much into all the different characters if it was three series and not eight? Do you know what I mean? So, um, you know, you sort of grow and love the stories um, and for what for what they are as a story, not because they're compromised in any way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, so I think I think that's the important thing. There might be another idea that we do, where um, you know we've actually got a simpler story and we stick to that being a simple story. Yeah, what comes to mind for me when you said that was I remember I'd watched the original Battlestar Galactica as a kid, and my yeah. brother-in-law I think told me how good the new version was, and. Yeah. To me, when I think of that particular show, I thought about the lightweight character stories. The small stories was what made that original version so great. And then the very first episode of the reimagined Battlestar Galactica is one of the most tense and uncomfortable hours of television you'll ever watch. Like they basically just said, this is a different, this is the same universe, but this is not the same tone. <laughs> and, yeah, 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 yeah. And like that, that was a risk. Like and quite often in sci-fi, if stories are too tense or they're too in full-on straight up, the critics seem to push away from that a little bit. They like character stuff or whatever, which is why I'm not a massive fan of critics in general. But yeah, it wasn't the the way you would choose to start a show if you were hoping to gently bring an audience in. That had was yeah, they chose a very tough way to. I mean, and there was a pre-existing audience. They thought, okay, let's just make a really uncomfortable hour of television and see if these people can. Stick with that, <laughs> and then it became yeah. a critical hit. And maybe it's not, you know, it's not a Game of Thrones level mega hit, but it's one of the shows that still people talk about. Just going forward for you guys, the scope of what you're trying to achieve is massive. And where are we at with? Because I, I went through the Facebook etc., and I remember you guys talking at the Border Dimensions convention about what you're hoping to do with the with the story etc. Where are we at with? getting different parts of the story up? Because I know that it's a multi-platform execution as well as a multi-narrative story. So, Yeah, well, I'll, I'll touch on where we're at with that because obviously being in the country and being sort of remote and rural is not that easy. Yeah. Um, I just quickly wanted to say about the story concepts we were talking about is when you think about it, how are you going to write, is anyone going to write a new and innovative story if they always draw on what's happened before. Yeah, exactly. Like one of the greatest film openings I've ever seen, which combines music with the visual, is the opening of In the Name of the Father. Yeah. And there's an opening song by Gavin Friday and Bono from U2, and it's very Irish, and it weaves in with this drum pattern and keyboards, and then the little kid runs into the pub to get his father. And then right when the fiddles and all that kick in in the classic Irish jig, the pub explodes right on the beat of the music. So how would they write that, like back in that day, if they just considered that the opening had to be like any other traditional idea? Yeah. So in a way, there is a format for making a film or a project, but you also have to try and think outside of the square in order to be different. And it's a matter of whether you're in it for creativity or you're in it financially. So, and that may sound foolish, but 
For me, it's about the creativity and the uniqueness of the idea. So along that line, we, well, where we're at is that we have just submitted a $15,000 proposal to Screen Australia to make a sizzle reel, which is a one-minute teaser video, um, which is like, it's a concept on its own. It's using um, the theme song, parts of the theme song, and we've put that application in. We've got another two weeks to wait until we hear whether or not we've got it. If we get it, we'll be making that in autumn up in the Midder Valley um, with a company in Melbourne called Dark Effect who are also linked to highway casting. So that's been a major step for us to actually find someone in Melbourne who actually wants to be involved in making it. So obviously that's going to be an interesting thing to see whether or not we get funded because our ideas so far out of the box. And then also I've, I'm doing visual arts at uni and within that I've got to make a five-minute like character development film. So John and I are actually going to link that to one of the characters in the story and film that obviously in a lot more sort of low-grade version than the Screen Australia funded project so that if we get that funding or not, we've got this actual five-minute film that's like a development of one of the characters. Um, And then aside from that, we've also got the theme song, which is a fantastic piece of music by Lee Unger, who is a former Aubrey resident who runs the Academy of Guitar in Campbelltown, took the lyrics that I had and basically turned it into something pretty amazing. And so the other alternative is that we have the theme song with visuals cut to that to try and pitch the idea and then, you know, a story form of it. And we've also parked the website as well. So because it's multi-platform and it's online in a way, like we're hoping that, you know, obviously Netflix or, you know, there might be some online way that we can roll this out. Yeah, we're just, we're sticking to our guns, but there's a finite point where we'll have exhausted those ideas. Um, And then John and I have also then joined the Australian Writers Guild, which you can do for a particular fee. You've got to apply um, and then they kind of accept it and then, you apply and then they put you, you're able to enter all these competitions. So there's one competition, I think it's the John Hind Award and there's three different $10,000 awards for science fiction scripts. Wow, okay, that's cool. Different things. So I always come from talking to people in Melbourne that like have connected us to where we kind of need to be. But I think the first half of this year is kind of critical because we're either going to get this teaser funding or we're, or we're not, and it's kind of our only chance to, to do it, to try and get that 15 grand. We're not into crowdfunding it or anything like that. I think that's a kind of, you know, a perilous way to go about it in our instance because it's such a big idea. Like if people, you know, if we crowdfunded it, you know, how are we ever going to guarantee that we, you know, that it'll, that it'll get made? So yeah. we kind of have stuck to our own resources and, and networks to do it to do it properly. And I, I do crowdfund for the young people I mentor through the Australian Cultural Fund and they head over to Somerset. So that's an Australian federal government thing. But that's different because it's a different outcome and it's less money involved, etc. So we've just said, we're putting this idea out there. We get the teaser. We've got the option of making the, like the character thread 
um, and all the music video ideas for the song and having it as a story. But there's a point where as those ideas or opportunities dry up, um, at a minimum, it'll end up being an online story on a website and then published in some kind of book form with a soundtrack to it. So okay. it means we don't have to give up our idea if, if you get my drift. So yeah, no. any, anyone that's listening to this, there's a lot of ego involved in being creative in that you can be humble about how you interrelate with people and that's important, but you also have to, if you're driven with a particular idea, you have to really stick stick to it. So, you know, I've met a lot of people who've got fantastic ideas and I just constantly say, look, you give it a go. Like, what have you got to lose by putting it out there? So, yeah, um, exactly know, right. Yeah. One th- one thing I guess just before we finish up, Craig, it is February twenty nineteen at the moment, twenty fourth, and at least I mean it might be because of how experienced you guys and how mature the team is around this that you've actually thought out the different implications of if this does if this doesn't eventuate by this point on the timeline, we can go to here and then we can go to here. That takes a certain level of maturity in and of itself, but. If it wasn't February 2019, some of what you have the ability to do, if this was 2009, those options wouldn't, those options just wouldn't have been there in any credible sense to be able to take the story onto the internet no, in a credible no. way yeah. and then build something around it because the platforms and the technology either weren't advanced enough or they were too expensive to access. So... I'm assuming when you say a published book, you would be pursuing releasing that independently or have I just misread what you were talking about? No, no, that would be independently linked to something online. So, and I think, I think too that as the, so in some ways when things move along, sometimes it goes full circle. I remember the part of the reason why the X-Files was originally such a hit in the 90s was Chris Carter shot it on film, Right. So all that landscape in Canada looked like you're actually watching a movie at the cinema. So so forgetting about the interrelationship between Scully and Mulder, and in the end, the, the overarching conspiracy theory was disappointing. But in terms of its mystery and the way it was shot, it looked like every Wednesday or whenever it was on on television, um, on Channel 10 in Canberra when I was there, that you're actually watching a film like you're in the cinema because yeah. of how it was shot. So I think, I think that was one interesting thing. And also, it's kind of a lesson as well. When Donnie Darko was made, that the director wasn't happy with the film company then editing his story because he didn't feel that it then captured the circular element of the story um, and that people wouldn't get it. So his director's cut is far more of an... Um, of a cohesive narrative than what the edited version was. Um, but the other thing that linked to that, and they actually no longer exist, but I've got a coffee table book on their work. There was a company that actually designed um, the Donnie Darko website and they did um, Requiem for a Dream and they did these really radical teasers. Like it just wasn't like watching a, a film trailer. They like, I think from memory, the, the Requiem for a Dream teaser they did online, um, the quality of it deliberately decayed. And in the end, by the time you got to the end, it was unwatchable. So that was to capture the mental state of the two lead characters. So stuff like that that happened, 
that was kind of using or breaking technology at the time that maybe now we, you know, we've moved on on from or like in the case of vinyl, yeah. we've moved back to, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, I remember being young and like in 1980 or whatever and coming out of Mid-States Records in Albury with a copy of Regatta de Blank by the Police on vinyl, like the brand new album. And um, just, you know, the whole thing of going home and playing it on vinyl because you'd only heard it on radio, which now it's all dropped online and all that kind of thing, just seemed like such an amazing thing. Anyway, when I was in Port Macquarie visiting a friend, this guy was similar to the age I was, like sort of, you know, in his teens. He was actually in the record store and heading towards the counter and he had a copy of the police's first album, Atlantis de Mort. And, he, and I looked, I said, oh, what do you got there? And he said, oh, this album, like the kind of post-punk thing, he said, this is the shit. <laughs> and I said, mate, if you think that's good, go and get Regatta the Blank. And he goes, is that better than this one? I said, both good albums, but Regatta the Blank was like the real album that broke them. And he said, right, I'll go and order that. And I thought, wow, like, that's the thing about, and in that, I guess, because we're finishing up, is that if you've got a strong creative idea and you stick to it, then it's going to permeate through time, you know. Instead of something that's sort of transient and in 10 or 20 years' time you go, yeah, well, that kind of now is dated. So I think sticking to the depth of your own work, in that instance, like that a massive spontaneous stuff that the police created is a pretty, you know, sort of amazing thing that it can last, what, now 40 years later since those albums were out, that some other young person who was my age then is tearing out of the record store with a copy of it. It's a sort of respect by the young people for, for quality. And the other thing is, which I just realised, is that it's actually the police song Synchronicity that first gave me the idea because it says the idea of synchronicity is that um, things that occur at the same time are not necessarily coincidence which is hence the idea of the three narratives. And the opening line of, or one of the lines in the synchronicity song by the police is, a star fall, a phone call, it joins all synchronicity. So the idea that someone's actually on the phone as a star's falling and having some particular thought, which then might connect or be reflective of the way they're thinking. It was actually listening to that song that gave me the idea about these astronauts returning to Earth and this guy who was creating a graphic novel around them returning to Earth and how he was all connected in that way. Yeah, that's a good way to finish it up. But there's one thing that you brought up in there that I think is crucial and it's about quality. And I have to say this, and the X-Files is a perfect example. If the, if the X-Files wasn't so great, there's two shows that wouldn't have gone beyond two episodes in this country at least, and one was called American Gothic and the other one was called Kindred the Embraced. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> every wet... That was a terrifying three hours on a Wednesday night because it went X-Files, American Gothic, and then Kindred the Embraced, which was a show about vampires. Yeah, yeah. But if it wasn't, if it wasn't for that quality of the X-Files, that wouldn't have had any on-ramp for people in terms of quality. It was just such a fantastic show for the time. And those other two shows, as you said... They look dated, they are dated, because the quality of American Gothic and Kindred the Embraced wasn't X-Files. Every, everyone tried to remake the X-Files, the same as when Mad Max first came out. 
particularly Mad Max 2, when those first two films came out, all these American film companies tried to copy that look of the characters and the way it was shot. And ditto Blade Runner, whilst they might have gone, oh, not a box office success, everyone was then trying to retell that story in that way. And then what's funny is you don't remember those other ideas. So you remember no. the X-Files and, and uh, American Gothic, but there's a myriad of shows that would have copied those that you don't remember because they're cardboard cutouts of what the real thing is. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, that's probably the exact thing is that they're um, like, I remember the police, but I don't remember other bands that tried to copy the police. Which I'm sure, right. considering they're essentially the first and only band to ever sound like that, which is really strange for a band that huge. But surely, as, as you're saying, there would have been tens of thousands of bands popping up that sounded exactly like them. You should have never heard of them. So Exactly, yeah. When a, when a band sells out Shea Stadium in America for 300,000 people, they're on to something, right? And what they're on to is the, the complete chemistry of what who they were and what they were creating. And it wasn't Sting. It wasn't actually Sting on his own because their sound is far different to what Sting's solo sound is, which his solo stuff's fantastic. But the key ingredients was that they were a trio. So Stuart Copeland, who went on to write the soundtrack to Rumblefish and The Equalizer and a lot of movies and sort of did his own thing, and Andy Summers with his unique guitar style and all the collaborative things he did in photography, it was the combination of their creative energy that made that five-year, five or six-year period that they exist, existed. And they did one album and one world tour pretty much per year, which is intense, made it such a unique thing. So, yeah, any any sort of people that are out there that are creative, it's it's kind of like the dynamic in your team is what makes it special. If you stick to the the... The, the the idea more so than trying to fit the idea into a pigeonhole. Excellent. Well, we might finish up with that, Craig. It can't you can't get much better when it comes to creative advice than that. So, where can we find how things are going on the internet? And is there anywhere where people could go right at the moment where there's updates that are current, or should we just keep an eye on a website at some point? We've got a, we've got the Facebook page. We're only going to activate the website when we're at that point where we feel it hasn't been taken it up and we're going to do our own thing, which even then we might do our own story version anyway. So there's the Facebook page. We haven't recently updated that because there's been so many other things in development, but some of the um, characters that we auditioned at Supernova have been invited to be involved with this teaser film. Yeah, I'm a bit reticent to put... On the Facebook page, oh, we've just applied for X amount of dollars with Screen Australia because it's like setting yourself up to fail if you don't get it and, broadca- and broadcasting something that might not come true, particularly for all the people that have been felt a connection with it that we've met. So it's a matter of just seeing if we get that funding, then we'll announce it, right? If we do and then we do the five-minute thing, we'll announce that, etc. So, yeah, it's a matter of just... And there's not a huge amount of people on there, but... My, the band that I work with as well that's associated with it's got, you know, a few hundred on there too. So it's um, we'll announce that stuff kind of when it's ready to be announced, but sort of not before. Righto, Craig. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Punching Sideways. 
And, yeah, it's just great that there's so much cool stuff happening within, you know, a, a circle around Albury Wodonga where we're based. And, yeah, just stretching that circle out a little bit recently to include a few other places. I've found some really great stuff, including what you're up to. So thank you, sir. And, yeah, I'll update the show notes for this episode in the future if anything comes of what Craig's been talking about today. Righto, mate. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Amen.